Let's turn our attention to God's Word now. And as you know, we are in the law together. Now, it's kind of nice when it's intimate like this and we have a few people. Uh, if you have a question in the middle of this, you can just raise your hand. I, I don't really care. I might ignore you, but you can try it. And, uh, and let's see what we get with this. I, I, uh, I've been telling you there's different parts of the law. The, oh, we're the tablets of the law. I'm going to introduce the text. I'm just going to talk about it and read it. And we're only going to read the first four commands, which is what, remember I talked about last week, the tablets of the law. Did, did, did anybody, uh, I might date myself, but Charlton Heston is definitely the best Moses. Nobody competes. And uh, when he comes down, it's the, it's the shape of the, it's that shape of the, the two uh, tablets, like the two stone. We, we have no reason to believe that's actually what they look like at all, but he's taking the, tab- the two tablets and and uh, and he uh, and he comes down. It's a very famous scene uh, in, in the Bible, even. And, and um, Moses had been a prince in Egypt, right? And now he's eighty plus years old. And and I want you to get a picture of this. Uh, if you've been a prince in Egypt, you grew up a prince in Egypt. Uh, nobody partied like the ancient pharaohs. Nobody partied like the ancient pharaohs. I mean, every bit of it between drugs and orgy and wild, it's it, abandoned, right? And the tablets of the law were in his hands. And, uh, and that's why we talk about two tablets, the vertical being the first four towards God and the horizontal uh, being hinged to them. So anyway, he's coming down with the tablets. Do you remember the story? He's coming down with the tablets. And there's a funny byplay that happens. Joshua, his second in command goes, Moses, Moses, I hear the sounds of war. You heard a noise. Do you remember what Moses said? Because Moses grew up in Egypt and had been to tons and tons of raves on the Nile. Do you know what he said? That's not war that I hear. That's a party. It's really funny. He knows what a party sounds like from the top of the mountain. Do you remember what he then does when he sees it? Because as he comes down to see the people of God, after they receive the law, they are having an orgiastic worship service in front of a golden calf. Now, what does he do? Throws the commandments down, breaks the tablets. Now, I always thought that, I always thought that that breaking the tablets seemed a little bit like a fit of peak, like that. Like Anna, you know? Uh, suddenly, like, Moses suddenly just got really irritated and threw, you know, does anybody here throwers when they get angry? Does anybody, anybody want to fess up that they throw things when they get angry? Oh, some people are smiling but not raising their hands. So, I know you do that, but still, that's not what's happening. No, not at all. It's not a fit of peak where he is irritated. Moses is taking this contract the law is this relational contract and he's throwing it to the ground because you can't tear stone (laughs) and what's he saying the relationship that's in the tablets between the vertical the relationship vertically is broken Busted. It has to be repaired. Because the relationship's broken. 
And so, uh, and that kind of, we're gonna see, I hope, I, uh, hope uh, that we'll see how this connects with the, I don't, I'm all completely off my own outline here. So before we get the first tablet, uh, I wanna give us a lesson in, in ancient Hebrew to make sense of this. And that is about something called the Tikkuni Sofarim. I should challenge Iron if he remembers these from his seminary days. The Tikkuni Sofarim. Now, the Masoretes had this, 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 uh, this, this habit of whenever they felt like a text, Genesis 18.25 stands for this, whenever the, uh, the text would describe God, or for example, God's name would be right next to the word cursed. There's another one like that. Or when they would change the text, but not without changing. They couldn't change the text because they thought the text was, was too important to actually change. But, uh, and Hebrew was all written in, in, uh, in consonants. And so what they would do is, they would change the vowels. And the vowels would be your clue as you're reading along and bopping along, maybe you're reading it out loud, and you would change, the, change them. And does it, what, what, what command, is not, it's not the command we're on today, what command is this right here? Do you guys recognize it? You shall not, you guys can do it, you can fill in the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the vowels, right? In Hebrew, there are no vowels. They added the vowels later in some, by the Masoretes, the Masoretic tradition. So we know you put a U there. We know you put an A there, an O there, and an E-A there. And that's kind of how Hebrew works. Now, if I didn't want you to say the word not, let's say I didn't want you to say this word. I wanted you to pay attention and realize there was a takuni sofarim, an alternate reading. I would put the word, I would put a different vowel in there. Now we know that's not a word in English, don't we? N-A-T is not a word. So if you read it, you would go, oh, that's not a word, I'm not supposed to say that. Or you would have some challenge to your perception. Uh, in Genesis 18.25, it says that Abraham, God stood before Abraham. Well, the Masoretes in the rabbinic tradition did not like that because it dishonored God. God doesn't stand in front of people. So they switched it. And they, by, by these pointings, so that when you read it, you would go, aha. They also did that with the name of God himself. In fact, they did it so successfully, they repointed it with the words Adonai, from the vowels from Adonai, from the A, the O, and the I, and they put, the, they put them in here. So any good Jew, even to the day, when he had this bar mitzvah, and he's reading the law for the first time, or he's doing the Shema, Shema, Israel, Adonai, Adonai, Echad, Adonai is replacing in that, is replacing the word Yahweh in Deuteronomy 6, 5, in the Shema. Now, they were so successful at this, that we're not quite sure how to pronounce the original word. They're so successful at creating rules in addition to the rule we're going to read today, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord shall not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Again, I had the, the old King James Version wired into my skull and imprinted. Oh, by the way, you ever heard the word Jehovah? Jehovah? The, uh, the, the, uh, the, the German scholars of the uh, 18th century did not know that the Masoretes had done that. They didn't know that the, the, uh, the rabbinic scholars had done that. And so they just wrote it out the way it was spelled right there in the middle of uh, the Old Testament with the Adonai vowels, and they came up with the name Jehovah. Jehovah. It's a completely made up name. 
does not exist in the Bible. It's not meant to be said like that. I'm going through this elaborate, elaborate teaching here. And now we're going to read the text. Let's read it together. I'm going to read it out loud. How does Christ himself, how does Christ himself, we know that he said he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, how does Christ himself tell us we should listen to his word? Go ahead and read that. How does Christ tell us we should listen to his word? And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the Father. On the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let me ask for a blessing. Dearest Father, I'm about to talk about these things, so please, I ask that I would not take your name in an empty way, that I would not lift it up in an empty way, and that we wouldn't in our hearts. Father, remember and forgive all the, all the crimes and sins of the one who speaks and of all of us who listen, for there are many. And we ask that we would see Jesus, we would know Jesus in Christ's name. What's, what's in a name? I, you know, I, you've heard this gag from you before. My name's Christopher Robbins. Yeah. Uh, and for those of you who are new, I, this is my joke. I'm going to pick it on you guys because you know all the ones who don't know this. But I often say my parents were high at the time. and I'm lucky I wasn't named Moon Unit or, uh, or uh, Dweezil. Uh, the children of my generation uh, suffered under the experimental names of their parents. And... Um, I didn't, uh, I always hate, I always, names, what, I, I was always aware of it. it. To me, my name was a very painful thing because it just meant I got teased a lot. You know, and it just meant I got mocked as a kid. So my name was painful to me. I, I didn't like it. And I wanted to run away from it. I didn't want people to know it. Now I don't care anymore. And, but, uh, but what's in a name? And I, it's this idea of these, this name business, this, all this work they did to keep themselves, for example, in the Old Testament, to keep themselves with all this zeal, I mean, to actually write everything so you just don't accidentally say the name. Uh, there's been a lot of, there's been a whole world of weird stuff that comes out of this. Uh, I, I, so I was in my office one time and Jason came in and Jason was tattooed from, uh, you know, foot to toe, head to toe, I'm sorry, and foot, it just everything. It was always something new. He was really fond of the Ezekiel visions. We had all these eyes all over his arms. He's a Christian. He's a good friend. He came into my office, and, I, and, and we were sitting there talking, and this is in Atlanta, 
And he was talking about, he was talking about, uh, Chris, you're so excited, so, so excited. Chris, I, uh, I found that, do you know that if you say the name of God the right way, and if you repeat it the right way, we've lost the tones and, and, the, and they, they were trying to keep us away when they, when they used those Adonai vows in the, in the Old Testament. They were trying to keep us away from being able to use the name to invoke power in the universe. And so and he's, I'll never say stretch, I'm like, I don't lie, I don't I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, he starts chanting it and beating his head on the floor. This is just, this is a friend of mine and you shouldn't be surprised by the kind of friends I keep. But and I said to him, after he was done, I said, Jason, what has this got to do? Jesus, I know you love Jesus. Oh, man, you're right, man. Yeah, that's really true. I, you're right. I, yeah, I, I'm not trying to fight you. I'm not trying to argue it. I'm not trying to... But what's this got to do with Jesus? But he, by the way, this is extraordinarily popular right now. He comes out of the Kabbalah, and you'll find that there, in fact, uh, there's a famous book by a Christian. Uh, it was Charles Williams who wrote the, the idea that if you could say the tetragrammaton, which is what this tetragrammaton, the four, the four letters, if you could say them backwards without meaning, you could undo the universe. Some silly nonsense like that. But what this became and what this involved, what this led to, in a sense, this command and all the way they, the way they thought about it, it led to a weird form of Jewish mysticism. And what that mysticism created, you ever heard of the Bible Code, for example? This, these are all sources of this. It's the idea that the words and the, their arrangements and, their, and their, that they all lead to magical powers. Powers over space and time. And maybe resonant with a crystal, even. And I'm not, these are frequencies. And that's what he was talking about the frequencies is how you say it. And if you get the right tone, you'd be thinking this is silly. But it's alive. It's a weird mix, too, of some, of, of some teachings that come out of the East where certain tones, you ever heard, ohm? There's an idea there, ohm, that there's a tone if you hit it, ohm, it will actually resonate with creating peace. These ideas, sir. Somehow we're a part of the of a, of a, this mechanistic view of the world. It's mystical and powerful, magic. By the way, this isn't that far fetched. And there are good theologians. Not we call them good theologians. They're called bad theologians, actually. But when I say good, I mean reputable in terms of going to the finest schools. The finest schools create a lot of garbage, don't they? And uh, and so they would say this ancient command was in a world where people thought that way about names. Have you heard of that idea? If you knew something secret name, you could have power over it? This is an ancient form of witchcraft. If you know something secret name, if you knew the secret name of stones or other people, their hidden name, their true name, you had power over them. And so some men who don't believe that God was revealing himself here would simply say this was imported, and all these attitudes about these words were imported from pagan religions of the ancient Near East. Yeah, so much for that. That's a one end. We could say if there was a spectrum, we could say that was all the way over here. It's a weirdness. On the other end of it is we don't think words have any meaning at all. You know, one of the most interesting things about this command to me is for us moderns, if you're a scientific modernist, um, 
there's no, what's the intrinsic moral value of a name? Like, why, why would using a name or not using a name make any difference at all? I mean, look, like I've said before, if I were to bop iron on the head, that might be a morally, a morally questionable act, <laughs> right? I might feel justified, but still, it's a morally, it's, it's subject, whenever as we harm one another, or even call each other names, when we do things that hurt one another, these are morally, intrinsically have a moral question attached to them. Was that a legitimate use of force? Is that a morally justified act? What's the intrinsic moral weight of saying God's name or not? Seriously. You have mysticism on one end, on the other end you have pure practicality. It's just a sequence of, it's just a, well, well, if anybody needs the lights on in here, it's you. Uh, all right, so. It doesn't have an intrinsic moral force. In other words, it doesn't abide, it doesn't penetrate, and you couldn't intuit it. And I bet we could intuit, if we gather together and every culture has, we could intuit stealing's bad, or lying's bad, or, or murder's bad. Or, and and you, how would you intuit? How would you figure it out by intuition? Or figure, oh yeah, you know what, we should never say this one name over here. Without, without, without meeting meaning. And the Hebrew says, you should not lift the name of the Lord your God as empty. That's the most, most little. What's going on here? Why is this a deal? Uh, it gets back to something we've been saying again and again. And something we're realizing as we kind of get closer to these rules. They don't represent, first and foremost, uh, just a um, rules for living. They don't meet, they don't, remember that we talked about how they don't really fit in Birmingham's uh, uh, courtroom. Why? And this way they begin, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The, when God gives us his name, he is saying, I am a personal God, and I want to know you. That, that candor, that, 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 and we miss it because we're, we're very familiar with a lot of this stuff or we've read these commands before. We think, oh, he's just talking about don't say, oh, my God. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about whether you should walk around saying, oh, my God. And I, but I, what we miss is what is so startling. It's, so, it's almost so startling, if, especially if you come from a, a religious tradition. You fail to be kind of astounded that what this means is a God from eternity past, eternity future, outside of the creation, comes in and says, here's my name. You can call me my name. We can, we can do this. We can have intimacy together. Now, do you see a clue beginning to erupt or rise? Maybe some little hint as to why this is a moral issue now? Think about it. So what does it mean to take God's name in vain? Or to treat, to lift his name in a worthless way? All of a sudden now there's a new dimension to it. And what it in fact becomes, potentially, and what it becomes for us is what we've done, or imagine we've done, or some of us have done, what we do is we trivialize 
or reject or don't rejoice in, we're not caught up in a God who loves us and would know us and wants to know us. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for he shall not haul it and us or take his name. Take his name. Vain is what? I, you can't, you must not treat the intimacy that God offers as a worthless thing. And that's why it's, that's why it's in the ten. <laughs> that's why it rises in its moral weight to what? Murder, theft, adultery. These commands, and that's why Moses threw down the tablet. You, do you see? Does it begin to get, come to your consciousness now? What was Moses? You rejected the personal offer of love. And you've, you've rejected what was given to you in love. You were, and there's nothing, you know, they, we have an expression, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Well, it barely touches the fury of hell for a God scorned in his love and his approach in love and his personal love for us. He takes the jilted lover thing very, very seriously. And that's what these commands are arousing. That's what they're talking about. You know what's funny? The reason I talk about the Takuni Sufari, something else is going on too. Those ancient rabbis, and I, my father's Jewish, so this isn't an anti-Semitic sentiment. They had a religion that had no personal God, and they did not want one. And there's a way you can sabotage any personal knowledge of God in your religion. There's a way that you can have this religion and have no personal intimacy with God. And let me tell you how. Make a rule and make some more. Look at this. It's what they thought, maybe, then, maybe coming from a sincere, uh, uh, sincere heart, they saw this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Okay, how can we do that? How should we do that? Let's make a rule where you never say it. Okay, okay, it's just a works. Yeah, right. How should we get there? Well, let's make a rule. Let's make a grammatical twist. Let's, let's, let's equip everybody so that throughout time and space, they will never break the slow. We're going to be good people now. Now, what happens is, and, and a principle is introduced here, and I want you to hear it carefully because it's one of the most important principles I'll ever give to you. God is offering us intimate love in his name. There, you cannot make a rule. God has never made a rule. No church has ever made a rule that makes anybody a better person. Did you catch that? There is no rule you can fashion, no rule you can put down, no, no law you can create that will ever make you a better man. It's, it doesn't exist. But what do we do in America? What do we do again and again in our churches and our communities? What do we do when something goes wrong? What do we do? We make up a, a new rule and we multiply more rules. And, it's, and that keeps lawyers in business because the rules are so vast 
and they work and they hinge and they, and they complement one another, they have precedent, and you work and we expand and we expand until we have a legal code that is, you know, that is absolutely gigantic, but we're not better people. <laughs> there's, no, there's no increase in the moral quality of our culture or society with the addition. We even have rules now against hatred. But it doesn't seem to be working. In your pursuit of God, in any kind of religious sense, in your pursuit, my dear brother, we were saying, Will, the other day about you know, the way you were taught all these rules in the Catholic Church or otherwise. Anyway, any rules of how long your hair is or what you do, those kinds of rules, or, or extra rules, they cannot save you. They will only condemn you. Because you know what, even when you create your own rules, you know what you're going to wind up doing? God could take all your rules you made up and do what? Turn around and just judge you by them. What if God were in judgment to say to you, Deepak, all of the rules you think are most important about honesty and friendship and integrity, I'm only going to judge you by those. Would you still be, would you still be condemned? Yeah. You'd still be condemned. He doesn't even need his rules. He can use yours. And you will fail. How do we, but I, I, I'm, I'm not, I haven't gotten to the good part yet. I haven't gotten to the good part yet. <laughs> because this is where this, let me tell you, the law, I never understood it until uh, the gospel came clear in my heart. Uh, how do you really keep this command? Peter told us. Peter is alive by the Spirit. He's standing in front of all the Jews and the Sanhedrin who are these rules they have treasured and built for generations. And what does he say? There is no other name under heaven given to men by which you may be saved. Who's he talking about? Jesus. What's this command really about? What's it like? What's it hinting about thousands of years before? What's it anticipating? And what's the invitation? We are saved by trust in the name of Jesus. I, we get, we, this, is, this gets exciting because a lot of us feel the weight of how the law pushes on us and we can talk about it there are, and, and we can talk about ways we, we, we sin in, in our mouths and things like that but when we return to this moment and this moment of joy that I want to share with as many that Christianity is turned on its head it's not like anything else is that we believe and we, are, we fulfill all of the demands of holiness and righteousness when we say what? Jesus, Jesus, I want to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want Jesus to know me. I know Jesus. <laughs> I am saved by Jesus. And what happens? You just kept the law. <laughs> In its intention, purity, beauty, and fullness, because he has a goodness and a righteousness that's for you and eclipses you. He saves you in his blood. He rises from death because he's the God-man. And his name now, in a magical, you explain that magical, I said the difference between the magical view of a name and the mechanical view, between the magical, mystical use of the name and what's just an empty view of names. Jesus, in a sense, is both things, right? Because he talks, what does he say about his name? 
You were, how, how did you be baptized? Into the name of the Father. These names are important now. They become, they're doing important because they're the names of personal people we know, persons we know and have a relationship with, persons whose connection saves and rescues us. And these names now are holy, right? Because there's nothing more holy than the names of the people you love. And the people, these and this now, this name's so holy. Now, how does Christ, and everything tumbles out of this, how to obey. Everything tumbles out about this, what the crime is. When we say, oh my God, let me tell, let me encourage you. When we use God's name, struggle. Hi, Katie. Come on in. Everybody say, hi, Katie. Hi, Katie. <laughs> yeah, we're giving you a hard time. A lot of people, a lot of people couldn't make it. Go on, go on. Should I bring in the coffee? No, it's all right. I don't think I need any more stimulants right now. Um, everything flows out of this, right? So now we realize why, oh my God, in casual ways, doesn't even make sense for the believer. That's my, that's my love. That's my. Now we begin to see the way we break this, when we break this, like, how do we break this command? I'll tell you how you break this command. Every time you were quiet and didn't say the name of Jesus when somebody needed to hear it. When we're silent about his name, we break it. When we neglect his name. One of my greatest concerns in seminary, uh, I think in seminary, in our educational system that I was a part of, I loved it. To me, I loved nothing better than winning an argument with somebody and making them feel stupid and feeling really smart. Isn't that godly? Doesn't that just charm your heart to know that that's what I was like in seminary? Thank heaven I'm not like that anymore, right? Stop laughing. I realized at one point in our, in our textbooks, I was saying God over and over and over again in conversations. Do you know I think we take the Lord's name in vain more as pastors and theologians than anybody else? Why? How could you say his name and not have it result in worship? Like that's the whole point, the worship of love and freedom. It's funny because Paul does this. When he does theology, he'll start talking and he'll start saying God's name and all of a sudden what does he start doing? He bursts into praise, and we get some of this beautiful theology. Doubt to him who's able to keep you from falling. And all these different. It's actually not Paul, isn't it? Anyway, it doesn't matter. So, all these beautiful explosions of praise in the New Testament are just because theology can't be dead. If you do theology in a dead way, without worship, what do you, what, what's the problem? You're taking the Lord's name as a vain thing. We can break this. We bring shame in the name of Christ by our behavior because we're called Christians. We shame his name. But you know, even as I think about it, we can multiply that. I can put the screws on and make it feel really bad maybe. But you know, I'm thinking, you know, it's the one way. Um, Katie and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday. Remember, remember we saw this last week, you're not perfectible. You're not perfectible. Neither are your kids, neither is your wife, neither is your husband. You are not perfectible. And I don't even know some of you. Every time, every time, we don't trust in his name and know that that name cleanses us from all sin. We take it in vain as an empty thing. So let's not do it anymore. Let's rejoice in our forgiveness and our rescue. I call myself. Do you, does anybody, any of you call yourself names? 
when you're mad at yourself. I call myself names. Um, I've got a lot in my head here, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to say it all like I want to. Um, all the ways we can keep his name. Uh, I, uh, my, my good friend of mine, Brian, he's been taking, being, he's been pastoring me, and he's been a therapist with me. We were joking around about about this poster I used to have. Uh, and I had it uh, at Wheaton back in college. It was popular in the 80s. And it was a poster of all the names of Jesus. Have you ever seen this? It kind of moves through this, the color spectrum. It's really cheesy looking. And I loved it because the center name is I Am and all the names of Jesus. And uh, it makes, And I want to tell you the power of the name here. Like this, this command and intimacy, there's so much. You learn and grow. You, you feel, you begin to feel God's presence when you study all of his names. It's amazing. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace. Just those kinds of things. Oh, all this beautiful line of the tribe of Judah. The days far, all these wonderful names. The bright and morning star. So, the, this name study. But we need to do that because, and what he said was, I have all these names I call myself. <laughs> all these terrible names. All these things that people have called me over the years or whatever. And he said, I think you should put them both up right next to each other in your office. <laughs> or maybe put one above the other. Because if we keep going back to his name as defining us, his name is love. <laughs> his name is freedom. His name is our joy. He's a person, not just a principle either. He's not just a force, but he's a person. He's available. His name is joy. His name is wonderful. All right, we can be freed of the things we call ourselves <laughs> and the things we accuse ourselves and the things people call us. And we can have this name this wonderful freedom in the name. And I like that idea. Uh, Joel Osteen, I know, wrote a book called I Am. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Oprah really liked it, which should probably give you a clue as to what I think of it. But uh, I was excited when I first saw it on the bookshelf. Because you know what Yahweh means, don't you? I am. It's the two-be verb. And I remember thinking, as I saw the title of the book and, and, and all of his teeth and his smile, uh, I felt charmed even. And I'm thinking, wow, maybe, maybe, maybe Joel's got it. And he's really turning to the name and honor and glory of a holy God and how it transforms us. He wasn't. Uh, he was saying, he was saying, you need to say I am a good person or you need to like own new things about yourself. What a cheat. I'm sorry, it's just a cheat to me. I am a great preacher, and that's going to make me one. No, it's not. I am good looking. It's going to make me better looking to be safe saying I am good looking, and it has not worked yet. I'm trying for years. But what I wanted, I was hoping I would see in that book, is not empowerment by calling ourselves new things. What I was hoping I would see was you shall not take the name of the Lord, the I am in vain. Lord won't forget that. Why? Because he rescues. His name saves. His name is love. <laughs> We're going to come to the table now. One of the Takuni Sofrim was Genesis 18.25. Where it reads, Abraham 
stood before God. That's actually in your translation probably actually says that. The original reading was God stood before Abraham. What did they always miss in the Takuni Sofari? That God would be one with his people. That he would stand in front of us like a servant and give himself in his love. I love his name. Pray in his name. Don't be afraid. Pray in it all the time. Let's pray. Father, all we've done is stumble into the mysteries of your name above every name. And the name of your son. And the name of your son, we are told, at the name of your son, every knee shall bow. Uh, Father, that just that picture of, of, of uh, you standing in front of Abraham, you stand in front of us. That's the picture of the table. You be a God with us. For us, a God we can name and know, like a friend. We, uh, we please forgive us for taking your name in vain <laughs> as an empty thing. Whether in our casual talk, or whether we neglect it in prayer, or whether, or whether we just don't believe how you're all that good news. And now, just, 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 just fill us with joy, Jesus. Name.